Hi, I'm Rochelle Jackson, and this is The Crime Couch. I'm an investigative journalist and true crime author, and I know who's who in the zoo. The crims, the cops, and the interesting individuals in between. So get comfy and join me here on The Crime Couch. It's going to be one heck of a journey. The Crime Couch is proudly sponsored by Bankvic. Tony Nance has had a fascinating career in the Australian Federal Police and Victoria Police as a fingerprint expert. At 21, Tony wrote a book about number plates. Now, initially he was told, you're too short and too blind to become a police officer. But while working as a public servant at the Information Bureau of Records, he was approached by the boss at the Fingerprint Bureau. This inspector knew all about Tony's book and asked him if he'd be interested in training as a fingerprint expert. From here, Tony never looked back. He joined the AFP as a sworn member and fingerprint expert. He's been posted to Southeast Asia many times and worked on the Bali bombing and the Thailand tsunami before joining the airport's Joint Aviation Intelligence Unit. Tony retired with 32 years of policing under his belt. Hi, Tony, and thanks very much for joining me on The Crime Couch. Afternoon, Rochelle, and great to join you today. Tell me, what's your fascination with number plates, Tony? An interesting question. I don't really know, but back in my early teens, I had interest in vehicle number plates and noticed different types from different states and wrote a couple of letters to the Western Australian Police and the Victoria Police and got some information back from there. It just blossomed on. You wrote a book, Australian Number Plates, in 1978, as we've already mentioned. How crucial was that publication about getting you into the job and, and why? I think it was the, the absolute, uh, the key to the whole equation, so to speak. The, the work I did there, in my own time, of course, writing the book, drawing the images in the very early editions by hand and uh, compiling information and then showing that to various police and people I knew and getting the sort of the thumbs up that it was useful really kicked things off. And it obviously, I suppose it actually secured you as being someone that they could go to for further information about number plates. Oh, definitely. Once I got things up and running in a fairly good fashion, I actually started to do lectures at the Victoria Police Advanced Studies course at Dawson Street and the Melbourne District Traffic and Patrol Division. And I did those for nearly 25 years at Dawson Street and covered a lot of TOG personnel and found I got very good feedback from the members with the information I was disclosing to them, which was great. So it's interesting that you joined the AFP, not the Victoria Police initially. Well, it was. I had I went through quite a process with Victoria Police trying to join of course initially I was too short that was uh, that was thrown out many years ago then I was short-sighted so I couldn't pass the standard eyesight test which was disappointing uh, I did try to, to uh, go through the channels with Mr Mr Miller the commissioner and Mr Mudge the deputy commissioner but they didn't find that there were suitable grounds to employ me on the basis of, of my number plate knowledge so that fell in a bit of a heap then so then I um, uh, came across to the IBR as a, as a civilian uh, Brian Norton the former officer in charge saw the book as you mentioned and thought this has got potential and said you want to be trained as a fingerprint expert and of course I took that opportunity up commenced the five-year training course and completed the training as the first civilian trained as a fingerprint expert in Victoria. 
It's a big accolade. What's actually involved in basic terms in training to become a fingerprint expert? Well, in those days, it was a lot of, a lot of manual searching. So you'd go through the stages of identifying the pattern types, uh, how to classify fingerprints, how to obviously look at the characteristics, uh, the patterns, the individual features and identify fingerprints. So you'd start off doing that process, looking at 10 prints, which are taken off offenders and off people that are in custody, etc., down to going to crime scenes. And you do that in a measured way where you'd go with senior experts, they'd monitor your activities and literally mark how you're going. And then you become a solo operator. Then you're able to go to low-end volume crime type scenes, moving up as you progress through that five-year status up to serious crimes, including rapes, homicides and uh, serious offences. What makes a good forensic specialist like a fingerprint expert? What qualities do you think you need, Tony? I think you need, I suppose, a bit of a pun and eye for detail. Uh, to be able to look at, look at things carefully, assess them, and then uh, and, and put those facts on the table, so to speak, and review them. And that's something you're doing all the time as you identify fingerprints. You might, they might nowadays use computers to assist in the searching process, which I did for many years as well, but the, the final decision is made by the human fingerprint expert. And I suppose you need a, a sense of detachment, I'd imagine, as well, going about your, your business. You must be able to look at, at some images or at some fingerprint worlds and be able to ascertain the sort of, um, I suppose, person that it's come from. Is that, is that all part of it? I suppose sort of. There's not really a, a way you can say that a certain um, group of people have got worlds or certain people have got arches. Just to, it, is, it is random to a degree, but mm-hmm. you, you do get a feel for it. And you often uh, you'll, you'll see a print you've seen before. You'll say... I've seen that print and you'll end up identifying it uh, from another crime scene or something like that. It's fascinating. How much information do you actually get um, you know, from a fingerprint? How much does it tell you about a person? Well, it doesn't tell you. It, 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 it'll, you often you can tell what finger it is or what part of the... It could be because the fingerprint or the palm or even the footprint. It'll give you that. But beyond that, it doesn't give you a great deal. You can't say that person is Chinese or Australian or they're 8 or they're 80. Uh, you can, in fact, with older people, the skin does become a little bit rippled uh, with age. Just, just, it just declines a bit. But generally, it's very difficult. But often, size can help. So could you tell the difference between a child's hand and an, and an elderly person's fingerprints? You could because, A, the size of the actual the fingerprint itself or the, the palm print and also the, the quality of the ridges will be much better on a child. Is it illegal to actually change or alter your fingerprints? Because often you hear that about top crooks, don't you, that they try to destroy their fingerprints at some stage. And I mean, is that illegal? I don't know if it's illegal. Probably not, but it'd be very painful. Uh, there's been cases in the US where people have had their fingertips sort of actually cut off, cut the fingerprint images off their fingerprints, off the tips, but forgetting that the, their second and third joints of their fingers and their entire palm area is the same valuable friction-ridge skin which can be identified. Really? So it didn't make any difference even despite the fact they removed the fingerprints? Correct. Once they, were, once they, uh, they came into custody with these, no, these fingerless finger, fingers with no fingerprints, they then did further investigations and were able to identify them through other parts of their skin. Costly mistake there. (laughs) How were the Australian Federal Police, now you worked with them, how were they perceived initially by the state police? Because look, there's there's been a little bit of friction in the past, you know, they've often been nicknamed the AFP, the plastic police, and the quip is, of course, that all they ever do is protect buildings. Is that accurate? 
No, not by a long shot nowadays, particularly. Uh, I joined the AFP in 1991, and even then, the uh, the actual AFP role was quite uh, quite wide. It was com- covering all Commonwealth offences, including all the Commonwealth fraud matters involving Centrelink, or the then Department of Social Security, the Taxation Office, and a range of other financial-type crimes. And it also encompassed all importation of narcotics and drugs that came over from the, from the border. Uh, since probably the, the Bali bombings in 2002, where the AFP has formed very good relationships with a, a people at like the Indonesian National Police and Victoria Police, New South Wales Police, has been a much better involvement with the states and territories and the AFP. There's numerous task forces formed now. Um, there's a lot of AFP members who are sworn as special constables of various states where they might be based and, of course, various state police sworn as special members of the AFP to, to make sure they've all got the appropriate skills and powers to do their job. Bank Vic was founded by police in 1974 to help members get a better deal on banking. Things are better today, but Bank Vic's purpose is the same, to serve the police better than the other banks with great rates and personal service. With a branch inside Victoria Police Centre and mobile lenders visiting stations or available by appointment, they're available where and when it suits you. Bank Vic get police because they've been helping them with their banking for nearly 50 years. To find out more, go to bankvic.com.au slash thecrimecouch. Bankvic is the trading name of Police Financial Services Limited, ABN What's your proudest achievement, Tony, working in fingerprints at the AFP? Look, I think the, the two things that stand, I mean, many, many crime scenes, many, many uh, serious uh, high-profile matters that were occurring in Victoria that I gave evidence and uh, did forensic work, but probably the deployments to the Bali bombings and the deployments up into uh, the tsunami in East Timor between 2002 and 2005 probably were all very interesting and rewarding events that I uh, attended and worked for. It's really good. What made them the proudest? What made you proud about the achievements that you managed to glean, you know, in those those couple of events? Well, I suppose the fact we identified many of the offenders in, in a range of different uh, jobs there, both in, in Bali with the bombing, with the bombing uh, culprits. There were a range of identified through fingerprints on motorbikes within premises. In, in uh, the tsunami in Thailand, in Phuket, we identified hundreds and hundreds of people via fingerprints, be that from fingerprints we received from Germany, from the UK, from all over the world. We had an international fingerprint team there and we'd have people send in a child's hand paintings from kindergarten that they'd use their fingerprints on a, on a piece of paper and we could use those to identify a body that had been located uh, on many occasions. Quite awesome and, and horrific work for the people doing the mortuary work, but it was satisfying to identify those people and, and put those, them at rest that they had been located and identified. We're talking about that job in 2005 when you went to Thailand and worked on the tsunami in, you know, I'd imagine very difficult conditions at times. How challenging was that to work in, I suppose, ostensibly a third world country trying to identify thousands and thousands of people? Well, it was, was a, a difficult 
difficult task. We're lucky that the uh, the Thai police force um, or Royal Thai Police have got a pretty good infrastructure running. So they set up a special centre in Phuket where we had police from all over the world. Uh, the, I, I ran a fingerprint team of about 30 people and there were Italians, Germans, New Zealand, uh, all, nearly all states of Australia, AFP, a really good team of people. And we had really good results there working with the people, the DNA people, with the dentists. And we had teams working at the mortuary doing the actual um, recovery of fingerprints from the thousands of bodies that were there. I remember interviewing dental experts who I think we discussed prior to this interview who'd been sent over to Thailand to identify bodies. Horrendous conditions, no morgues and sweltering heat. Is that how you recall the job? Oh yes, definitely. That uh, the Southeast Asia, Indonesia, Thailand, always hot, always humid. I remember, in fact, we uh, every night we'd go, we drive home, and sometimes the dentist came with us. We all travelled together, and most of us to fall asleep. We'd been up all day, but yeah, it was just so hot. Um, they had air conditioners, and it was reasonably it was reasonable, but it was difficult compared to here. And the mortuaries they built, I think the Netherlands built the mortuaries. They're like tunnels, they call them. Quite impressively built. But, uh, it was hard work. I can tell you, it was hard work. How important is it, Tony, to identify a body? I think it's very important. It gives the uh, the relatives and the uh, people close to that person closure. The person has been located, and not unlike the the two bodies found up in the um, the high country now, where they've been missing for over twelve months, and now whilst fingerprints hasn't played a role in that one, it's, uh, they they appear to have been identified. Is still formal processes to go through. But at least it makes makes the people know. Well, we know it's happened. They're not missing. Not haven't flown to South America and disappeared. They're actually there's a sort of closure. So it is important. So it gives the relatives and the people that are left some form of a clue about what happened. Possibly, that's right, exactly right. I mean, I think even in the, the tsunami, there were thousands of bodies never identified due to the fact there were no records to compare with. Uh, the, the bodies were in such a condition that they didn't lend to any of those processes being suitable to identify, so they had to be just be put into a, um, a, a communal grave at some point. What can you get from a fingerprint that you can't get from dental records, Tony? I think it's uh, often the ease of uh, the process. I could break into this house here and break a window and leave a fingerprint on the, the broken part of the glass. So it has to then be a, an offender's print because it's over the break. And that's easy to develop using a simple powder and brush. You're not sort of pulling teeth out of someone's head or cutting a bone open for DNA. And uh, so fingerprints has a role. It's, it's a very simple process in many cases. Uh, there are advanced methods to develop fingerprints on papers and other surfaces, but your basic powder methods, which they use nowadays, is so simple and so straightforward. Is it still very difficult? Because you always hear, don't you, on uh, the television shows how difficult it is to get the fingerprint powder off. Is that still difficult to get off items? I think the black powder is still pretty hard. I spilt a bottle once at a place in Furniture Gallo, kicked it over on the carpet, and the guy said, look, don't worry about it, but I was pretty worried, but it would have ruined the carpet for sure. The white powder is not too bad. The black powder, that's a problem. What's the difference? Where would you use the white powder and where would you use the black powder? It's really contrast. Uh, on glass, you always use white because it photographs better, but if you're doing, a, obviously, a white cabinet, you use black powder. But there are certain, there's even fluorescent powders that you then use a special light source to, to view the fingerprint. Is that like luminol? Similar sort of thing, similar to here where it's actually, it, uh, it, it shows up under certain light sources. So you can do like a multicoloured, uh, like a drink can that might be multicoloured, use a, one of these powders. You then photograph it using a light source like, like luminol uses and you can see the, the fingerprint if it's there. You weren't trained as an operational police member. Uh, so how do you deal with the disasters and the chaos and the dead bodies how do you deal with all that you know when you come back to Australia I think I've uh, well I did the AFP obviously the initial training but I hadn't spent any time on the on the road so to speak as a, a uniformed police officer until the end of my career mind you I think uh, if you take that mind
mindset, you've got a role to perform and a, and a, a task to undertake, you can sort of semi uh, put it aside. You can put it to one side. One example is I took a, a trainee police officer down when I was at Victoria Police and we had the, the PCETS trainees out for a couple of days with us. And this guy was an older guy, probably um, maybe in his 40s, and he didn't want to go to the mortuary at uh, South Melbourne. So we went down and I said, here's the car keys. You can stay in the car. I'll go and do the job. Let's just take two thumbprints of the guy who died. He said, no, no, I'll come in. So he came in and um, when we got in there, he sort of took a, took a different uh, tact. He was quite helpful. He helped me fingerprint this particular guy. We got the prints done. And I think it broke the ice for with dealing with dead bodies and with dealing with that concept of policing it's not something people like doing but he just wasn't prepared to face it but the way we did it it actually worked I think in his favour and I think he's probably hopefully nowadays he's um, he's had that initial exposure and it might have just helped him hopefully. Do you remember you seeing your first dead body and how you dealt with that Tony? I certainly do I was told this is old days back in the early 1980s to go down to the old mortuary at Flinders Lane and get and get two uh, bottles of blood from a from a dead body yeah. to be used in experiments with uh, fingerprints found on clothing with blood and stuff so someone at the fingerprint put their fingers in the, in this blood from this body and do whatever so I went down there to pick up the blood and Dr McNamara was the pathologist and my father was a doctor and he knew him quite well and uh, I walked in there having cups of coffee around the three or four post-mortem so it was quite surreal to see these bodies is that a body or a mannequin and it was really quite quite sort of eye-opening but uh, it was a, probably a good way to get introduced to dealing with death so to speak because I saw hundreds of bodies from then on hundreds and hundreds. My father initially worked in the morgue as a very young constable and he said he used to sit and watch the post-mortems which certainly is something I'd never be able to do. Did it, does it give you a different perspective about life when you're so close to death and dead bodies? I suppose what it does it tells you how, how you can go from being alive to being dead and once you're dead you're just literally a, uh, a, a something sitting on a slab in a mortuary or in a hospital And uh, but it's what, it, what I did find was the ones I looked at it's very procedural it's, all bodies are the same and the same organs the same this the same that and they uh, it's amazing how those pathologists and their the guys that work with them the um the uh, assistants, they're, they're, they're great people. They do great work. You finally joined Victoria Police in 2007. Now, how significant was that after being told you're too short, you're too blind, and then you finally were allowed to join? Well, it was interesting. When I went uh, went into the aviation uh, portfolio at the airport I was told well you'll need to become a special constable of Victoria Police and uh, so I, that was fine I had to do a bit of paperwork did a lot and went into the trade centre one day and Steve Fontana was the assistant commissioner he swore me in and um, a couple of the CT guys were there Des Appleby I think Jerry Ryan might have been there at the time because it was done under the, under the CT banner so I became a, a constable of Victoria Police got an ID and uh, finally in fact the guys at the airport we got VP numbers in the end so I actually got a VP number which was quite unique the, the bulk of the special constables around around Australia from New South Wales and Victoria etc just got an, an authority sworn in but never got a VP number so we could do all the bits and pieces we are like almost a real policeman then <laughs> What do you think is your greatest career achievement in all, in you know in all the the years that you're working in the job? What would you regard as your greatest uh, achievement? Well, I think really the one would be becoming a fingerprint expert. Uh, being the first civilian in Victoria to get that to hold that sort of um, expertise was quite. Um, quite unique and really rewarding but I also go back to the number plate book it really helped me was that was the lever into into the fingerprints into the AFP 
and, and, and onwards. So, so it's a couple of things, really. The, the number plate book being the early research work I did, then the qualifications as a fingerprint expert in, uh, in 1989. And I remember being in Sydney. I was the first civilian to go up to the, uh, the Central Fingerprint Bureau. It was the Australian like Central Bureau. And all experts were examined there by an independent panel. And I went up as the first civilian, very, very nervous. But the guys were really good. They looked after me and they said, no, nah, we treat you the same as normal. So it was really good. And it was just a great achievement um, to get through that, both for the Victoria Police, it helped them, obviously, and for myself personally. What's your preference, Tony, working for the AFP or VicPol and why? Look, I think it would be the AFP. I had a lot more opportunity there. Um, I travelled widely throughout the Pacific and up into Asia up into China. Uh, For some years I worked on a special project which was the Case Management Intelligence System, CMIS, and I travelled up into these areas to deliver intelligence training, also to do some IT support work installing the software on their servers and computers. And I loved that work. for I did that for about four years in between the uh, forensics and going back to the airport. And uh, yeah, it was was, was good stuff. And the AFP had great, uh, great, uh, there was so much, what's the word, Um, opportunity. Overseas deployments, I never got deployed permanently. I did a lot of work over overseas but if I'd wanted to I could have sought an overseas posting but uh, I didn't again have the investigative background to really do that but uh, I enjoyed my time where I had the deployments up I was going to Indonesia every couple of months up to Jakarta I loved it it was great got some good friends there but always love coming home I must admit uh, I, I agree. It's always nice to return, isn't it? <laughs> How difficult was your decision to retire? Because you strike me as being someone who uh, likes being busy and I'd say you've got a very active mind. How difficult was it to retire, Tony? Look, it wasn't that difficult. I'd, I'd sort of a few years ago decided um, I was in the Commonwealth uh, PSS scheme, which is a defined benefit scheme where I could retire at age 55. I was born before 1960. So I made a decision probably three or four years before that to say, I'm going to go at 55. I'd made that decision I'd made that pretty clear at work in that few months I had the year off I took off a year before I left on long service leave I had a couple of medical issues so I had a bit of sick leave thrown on top of that but I went back in December 2013 and and retired uh, two days after I turned 55 and it was a decision was not lightly made it was sort of a a hard decision but I I also felt that I need to hand the baton on to someone younger I was a sergeant I was a leading at that so I then moved into the airport uniform policing so I was a team leader or a, a section leader of a uniform team and we were pretty busy out there doing our AFP duties along with our Victoria Police duties. We got quite a bit of Victoria Police work out there. And I thought, at age 55, I'm still quite capable, but that's a 35-year-old man's job. So I left. That created a vacancy in the AFP recruitment. And maybe your cousin got employed and, and they've got a job now and I'm, and I'm happily retired. Tony, you're still lecturing for various police agencies and the RTA. Now, how important is it for you, for your expertise to be recognised? I think it is important. You know, I just was invited back to the airport recently to uh, give a lecture to the airport uniform police teams on number plates again. So I had to rekindle my old TOG advanced studies course kit, which I did. And I, I did five, five separate week lectures over five weeks. And by the fifth week, I really refined that lecture back to being right up to current standards. Um, I had over 4,000 images in a PowerPoint. Didn't use old PowerPoint, didn't have time, obviously. But but I think it was well received. And I've had a bit of interest from Victoria Police again from one of the Highway Patrol units who are quite keen to get me back to have a talk to them at some stage. So I'm looking forward to talking to the guys there and happy to go and give them a talk. For anyone listening to this interview that would be interested in getting involved in forensics or fingerprinting, what would your advice to them be? Definitely a good career to, t- to partake in. And many of the roles now are civilian-based. All The whole fingerprint bureau in Victoria Police is, is all civilian 
civilianised, except for some of the existing older police members there. But it's all civilianised. Uh, the crime scene section, I think, is still police. Uh, but there are other units that do uh, have civilians. New South Wales Police is the bulk of their crime scene examiners as civilians. Uh, Victoria Police now, the crime scene services section is, is all police again. So it's a little bit more difficult here. You've got to be sworn and go through that the initial process to join. But uh, I, I'd recommend anyone consider joining the police force. It is a good career. It has, it has changed. And many of the people listening, be like myself, retired, would like the, the good old days. But there is some good, some good parts of it still. But it is more difficult, no doubt, than what it was. So what's next for you, Tony? Well, I've had a project raising some money for police veterans, which you're aware of, and we might talk about that another time, but that's been a really rewarding process. I've raised about $60,000 selling some old Victoria Police radio equipment. So if anyone's got any equipment they want to donate for sale to go to Police Veterans Victoria, please give me a hoy. That could be anything. It could be furniture, it could be whatever you like. If it's sellable, we're happy to try and flog it and make some money for uh, Dave McGowan and the boys at PVV to keep the, uh, the veterans happy. Well, look, it's been a delight. Thank you very much for sitting with me on the Crime Couch. Pleasure, Rochelle. Look forward to catching up again soon. Thanks for joining me. I'm Rochelle Jackson and I look forward to your company next time on The Crime Couch. <laughs>